you have your Bibles, I'd love you to turn to the book of Titus this morning. Titus chapter number 1. And then just a few pages earlier will be 1 Timothy chapter number 3. And you can kind of finger over there, hold your place. We're going to read both texts this morning. Um, for at least this week, we'll carry on with what we have began last week. Um, that's speaking on the issue of eldership, leadership within the church. Chances are next week I'll pick back up in our exposition of the book of Mark and in preparation for Easter and then after Easter we may pick up a couple more sermons um, on the topic of eldership. For those that don't know, it's a topic that's came back up in our church as we seek to um, order the church rightly. And I think that it's important that we have some of these realities before us. Um, you know, Some people last week said it was a different type of sermon than you usually preach on. I know in families there's oftentimes different types of conversations that need to be had, and that's true as well in the family of God. This may not be the most exciting material to you, but I can assure you that it is some of the most important. Um, that when you get leadership wrong, when you order God's institutions inappropriately, and either they lack in leadership or you put the wrong leadership in place, unqualified or disqualified, um, inevitably, the whole institution crumbles. And from that, um, tragedy after tragedy, um, in a similar way that's happened with, with, with the institution of the home, and um, inappropriate things downward spiral and we end up where we are today. Um, so we're going to tackle this topic at least this Lord's Day. And I pray that you'll listen well and even examine your own hearts. And, um, and as a church, we'll examine men. So um, if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's Word out of reverence for it. And we'll take up our first reading in Titus chapter number 1, verse number 5. And then we'll turn to 1 Timothy chapter number 3 and pick up our reading in verse 1. Uh, Paul writes to Titus in verse number 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having children, faithful children, not accused of dissipation and, or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable. A lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. And then in the rest of that passage, he tells you why. Because there are many insubordinate. And it carries on with issues that are happening within the church. And the answer is eldership. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse number 1, um, you see what we'd, have, what we'd call a parallel passage. As Paul writes to Timothy, the type of man that he is to ordain and appoint. In verse number one, he writes these words. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good word. A bishop must then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? 
not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, once again we come to You just with an expression of need. Father, I pray that we all come collectively with a humble heart, um, ready and willing to receive Your Word, Father, at whatever the cost. Whether it's joyfully, Father, or it's um, with difficulty. Uh, may our affection be so great for You and for Your Son and for Your Spirit, um, Father, that we willingly receive it even, um, even in the most pain. That we recognize, Father, that the cost is worth it. As we lay aside ourselves, we lay aside our preconceived notions, we lay aside what we may believe, Father, we lay aside um, our, our, our loves, our idols, uh, simply to uh, exalt and to worship You, Father, through Your Son. Uh, we praise You most of all for Him, Father, the One who is willing to come into the world uh, of His own freedom according to the plan and that was laid out even before creation began. And by the aid of Your Spirit, subjected Himself, Father, uh, willingly to, to human flesh that He might die a sinner's death on our behalf. Father, we're reminded that even more as we approach the Easter um, hour coming up here, Father, very shortly. We're also reminded of that great resurrection, that great life, Father, that uh, the Holy Spirit raised Him from the dead and thus we too can have life and have it more abundantly. So Father, I pray this morning that all that are under the sound of my voice are in Christ. The reality is, is that chances are that some are not. We pray this morning that You'd even use this text seemingly obscure and apart from the Gospel and that You'd use it to make these people alive, Father. I'm recognizing that it is our devotion to Him is a result of what He's accomplished. So if we were to be any type of man or woman that You desire for us to be, it's only going to be empowered and enabled by the, by the reality of the Gospel. That Jesus Christ makes us more like Himself because He's purchased that life for us. So this morning, Father, with the fruit of the Gospel be present among us. And as we gather together, would You make us more like Your Son? Whatever that means and whatever that takes for each individual, Father, we know that You have the power to accomplish it. And that, that generally You accomplish it, Father, through the means of Your Word. So may Your Spirit go with us now as we approach the text. Help us to be faithful. Father, and help us to receive it with joy. And may it be used, Father, um, for eternal things to make us more like Your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. <clears throat> I said before, leadership is no small matter. But you could almost catalog history on the basis of that. Successful leadership, unsuccessful leadership, Valid leadership, probably more appropriately, and invalid leadership. Um, as much as people, us, we, me, you, people throughout history, would love to live as totally autonomous creatures without any authority, the reality is, is that that's an impossibility. Um, our society, every society prior, is structured in such a way there have been leaders and there have been followers. Some have been good. Many have been bad. Even throughout Scripture, you could almost catalog it that way. Um, valid leadership and invalid leadership. And you recognize that 
And I say that because you might get the idea with successful and unsuccessful leadership, although that would be um, appropriate terms if you understood those rightly. Um, you might get the sense or the idea um, that leadership is simply doing the right thing or having the right structure or this or that. But really what the Bible does is it puts more of an emphasis, especially in the New Testament, but also prevalent in the Old Testament, and not necessarily um, what a person does, but who a person is. Because the reality is that we do things, and the things that we do are the fruit of who we are. You know? And that's true of not only ourselves, but that's true of God Himself. That He acts in a certain way, He carries Himself in a certain way, He does certain things um, because of who He is. That the character, um, the inner man, that which makes that substance, which makes us us, um, gives birth to the fruit of our hands, um, to the, the direction of our feet, um, because essentially... Um, the greatest reality about us is not um, what we do, but it's essentially who we are. And, and that's, again, re-emphasized all throughout the New Testament. Jesus is teaching, you know, that which comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. You will know them by their fruits. You'll know them by their fruits. Not necessarily you'll know their fruit, but you'll know who they are by what they do because what they do is a, is a clear expression of who they are. Whether it was Adam in the garden leading Eve, whether it was Noah leading his family, Abraham leading an entire community, his family, his extended family, his laborers, his servants, whether it was Moses and leading a nation, the world is marked by leadership. And it's always, or not always, good leadership. I mean, whether it's Cain's leadership that led a community to, to rampant murder, abuse of justice, and a whole host of other sins, or it was Pharaoh's leadership who enslaved an entire nation. We can talk about David's sins. We can talk about Solomon's sins. We can talk about the days of the judges. We can talk about the immorality of the kings that were to follow. And what you find through it all is that these men led. They either led well, they led poorly. And listen, sometimes we read the Bible. And we read the Bible somewhat isolated. You know? We think about David and we think about, oh man, David really messed it up. You know? And we, we read Psalm 51 as if it was just a slap on the hand and God came along and David repented and it's, it's all blessing after that. And in some sense it is. We glory. I glory in that. I read David's Psalm in Psalm chapter 51 and I know what he went through with Bathsheba. I know what he went through, uh, went through with Uriah. I know what happened. I know the great treason that came upon his heart and his soul and it was manifested to a nation. Uh, I know the, the, the sexual immorality that he was engaged in. And I read Psalm 51 and I glory in Christ. You know? Because in some ways, it's like looking in a mirror and I see my own sin and it's just fleshed out and I, and I just see the grace of God extended to it. But the reality too is, is that that wasn't an isolated sin. That, that, that He was called to lead and to lead a nation and to lead a home and to lead a family. And the reality is, is that His failure in leadership and the sins of His life affected people. I mean, He had a baby die in infancy as a result of his sin. I mean, he left casualties on the battlefields of thousands of men because of his failed leadership. 
That, 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 that the home, that, 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 that men in the home, that men in the church, that men that lead our nation, men that lead organizations, or, or women that, that lead in certain areas of, of life and in the home and in incapacities and outside the home, that, that, what, that what we need to get a grip of is that if we are going to assume positions or we're going to um, take the reins or responsibility is going to be laid upon us, that, 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 that it's more than just about us. That, that, that failed leadership, unsuccessful leadership, invalid leadership, the lack of leadership is no small offense. That it affects people. And thus, it is, a, it is an area in which we, must des- we, 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 we have to desire and we have to pursue with, with, um, with uh, fervency and with faithfulness that we're not just going to elect men because, uh, and this is inevitable, and this is a, an epidemic in our age, you know that that they'll give that, that the churches are are well known. You know, at least in the circles that I've been a part of in my past. You know, for giving a certificate of ordination or ordaining any man who has strength enough to jump out of a pew, say Amen. You know, and preach a sermon that that um, is seemingly faithful. You know, to, to give any man. Um, a certificate of ordination or appoint them to some position to lead others simply because they're zealous. I'm going to tell you that that's foolish. And it's led to much peril in youth groups, but also in churches across America and throughout, um, throughout the ages. Yet at the same time, um, there have been churches that have placed so stringent and have such a high and seemingly lofty view of the position of elder and pastor that it seems as if no one's qualified. Um, and thus men never step up and men are never appointed and men never there's never a plurality of elders or leadership within a congregation to lead as God intended. And I think that we have to approach this and we have to approach it though um, in a healthy manner. Not seeking to just ordain anyone that comes along that, that is unqualified or disqualified simply because there's a, a need for leadership and there's a zealousness about this person and thus we, 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 we put them in that position because they're there. That's inappropriate. But at the same time, um, we also need to balance out the, the qualifications and realize that, that, that we're not looking for perfect men. Those men don't exist. There was one that did, and they crucified him. Um, but the reality is, is that that men um, are within our midst, and there's no doubt that there are some of these men that are qualified to lead. Um, and we need to know what those qualifications are. You need to know. You know, you may sit there this morning and think this doesn't pertain to me because I'm not pursuing leadership. Well, what you find between Old Testament and New um, is not only in Deuteronomy chapter 1, but Acts chapter 6 and, and other places. What you find is that the church is often instrumental in the raising up of these men and the appointing of these men and, the lo- and looking for these men. You know? Um, and if you are questioning whether these men need or whether we have men or not and there's a, there's generally a number of issues you know either you don't know the men um, either you do know the men and they're not qualified if that's the case you need to come to us and let us know um, or you don't know the men and you think they're unqualified but they're not you simply don't know them or maybe it is is that you have an idea of what leadership should be and it's unbiblical. 
You know, the goal is at some point to correct any of these things. Either the men are unqualified and we need to know in what ways they are, or you have unattainable goals for the quality of leadership and those need to be corrected. You know, everybody has a different idea. And I'm not saying everybody, in general, um, in general, there's a lot of different ideas on what, what um, the biblical qualifications are. And at ground level, we need to know what they are. We need to know what type of men are qualified. We need to know what type of men um, to appoint. Um, we need to understand what the biblical qualifications are. We need to know who is to lead this church. And thus, we need to go to the Scriptures at the ground level and seek to know and seek to, to understand who it is that God desires to lead His congregation. Again, because to, to, to fail to order the church appropriately um, is to set a disaster before the people. It's no small offense. Um, you see that not only in the Old Testament, but particularly in Revelation. I was reading just this morning in Revelation chapter number 2 about the sin that abounded in many of the churches. You know what Jesus Christ does? He comes before the church and He says, sin is running rampant. This is a paraphrase. And it needs to be corrected or I will come and bring a sword. That if failed, if there is, is, is invalid leadership or no leadership within the church, inevitably the flock of God um, is, is on the chopping block and destruction is before us. Thus we need to pursue it in such a way that God would um, desire. And He's clearly laid it out for us. So let us look at this this morning. Who qualifies to be an elder? What type of man are we looking for? Four. First of all, we're looking for a man with a desire. We're looking for a man who is called. Both internal and external. We're looking for a man with a desire. First Timothy chapter number three and verse number one. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, um, an overseer, um, again, last week we looked at that. It's somewhat of a synonymous term uh, for the pastoral role, for the elder. All of these are used interchangeably. It's one office, the bishop, the overseer, the, the one who's been given oversight in the church, the shepherd of the flock of God, the one who is to feed the sheep, the one who is to stand in the gap at the door um, to withstand the wolves, the one who is the elder, the mature, the the spiritual, the one who's cultivated spiritual um, godliness in his heart and in his life. This man, um, it is a faithful saying that if a man desires the, this office, this office of eldership, this office of a bishop, this office of, of overseer, that he desires a good work, an excellent work, a beautiful work, a, a majestic work, a joyful work, the very work of God. The word literally, desire there, and that, that, that first Word. It literally means to stretch oneself out in order to touch or to grasp. To reach after or to desire something. Some of your translations may actually say anyone that aspires to the office. One who pursues it, reaches for it, is groaning after it, is pursuing it. Desires a good work. That second word, desire, there, you may... Um, have a translation that, that translates the first one, aspire, and the second one, desire. And, and they do that appropriately because it's a different word. It's a, it, it, he desires a good thing. It means to long for. He who is aspiring, running after, reaching for, longs for a good thing. It, the one reaching after the office of bishop, of overseer, the one who manages and stewards the work of God in the local church, he longs for a good thing. It's an excellent thing. It's a right thing. It's a theologically and practically good thing. 
And it, it, it's, it begins often with a desire, not solely a decision. And this is not something you simply decide, man. Now, I come from a, a long, uh, again, tradition in which um, in youth groups, every man seems to be called. You know, they're not only striving for professions of faith and men to come to an altar to, to, to ascend to a knowledge of God. They're not only interested in souls being saved, but these revivals are often gathered around an idea of, of getting men to, to answer the call to preach. I can tell you that, that, that in some of those circles, it seems like every man by the age of 18 um, has this call on his life. You know? And that would be great if it was true. But the reality is, is that there are certain giftings within the church and not all men are called to this position. But those who do desire it, desire a good thing. And it's more than just a simple decision. It's more than just looking at and, and evaluating and, and, and looking at the office and just thinking that this would be the, the, you know, the, the logical thing. My dad was a preacher. My grandfather was a preacher. You know, it seems like a good life. I can get a, a good job and a career in this, you know, in this church or that church should be a way that I could support my family and just simply logically deduce that this is something that would be good for me and I can decide um, completely on my, my own. That, that what you see is that the office of elder... I mean, it's more than just simply a mature man and an elder, as we mentioned last week. But, but there's an actual act of God in the Scriptures in which Acts 20 28 says that the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which He has purchased with His own blood. That men who are going to oversee the work of the church that it is to be done is planted there by God Himself. That in accordance with... 1 Corinthians chapter number 12 and, and Ephesians chapter number 4, that these men are gifts to the church. Just like He gifts the church with all four sorts of gifts. Um, for example, in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, He says, but now hath God set the members. It's the exact same word. Made them overseers. Made you overseers. Is the same idea in 1 Corinthians 12, 8, where He says that God has set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased Him. That God makes men. He makes you. He makes me what He desires for us to be. He set people within the body for the common good. Uh, by, by His Spirit, he, he, he chooses out particular men for office. One's an eye. One's a toe. One's a foot. One's a, a hand. He does it with men. He does it with women. He does it with every God-saved um, God individual. Everyone that's been blood-washed and born again and saved into the family of God has been placed within the body where He desires by the Spirit of God and for the common good to serve one another. And that we're all different. And, but, but at the same time, we're all different because God ordained it. You know? And that if there's a desire that God has placed in you, that that's a good thing. And the church needs it. The church needs, let me say this, the church needs all of you. Every single person that's here. If God has saved you, we need you. The last week when we're talking about ordering within the church, and we're talking about ordering in, in a right manner, but not just ordering in putting people into place, but ordering a right authority and submission. And the reality is, 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 is that, that, that the world has looked at the order within the family. This is the argument last week, and I don't know that I, I made it the clearest, but, the, but, but they see division within the family, and it's an area of contention, so they seek to obliterate it, to get rid of gender altogether. But in doing so, they obliterate the mission. Because it's in the distinctiveness of the differing roles in which it actually enables Adam and Eve to take dominion, be fruitful, and multiply. 
That if you mess with order, you mess with the mission. And it's the same within the church. And you know it. It's a simple illustration that preachers make all the time. You know that 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 that, that reality or that 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 ideology of the world now doesn't work out in any institution ever. There's no team, you know, that at the beginning of the the year the coach looks at and says, "What would you like to be, son?" You know, and we end up with forty quarterbacks or forty receivers, men who think they, they desire the glory. You know, you don't have a company that's a, a Fortune 500 company that has you know thirty two CEOs and one guy that works for them. You know, the, the mission is completed often in its diversity. It creates contention. But the answer is not to, 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 to destroy um, the, the, the levels within or the roles and responsibilities for the sake of the contention. It is to embrace the way that God has made us as individuals within the family and within the church and to realize that without the toe, um, we are off balance. That without the, the this and that, that God created the entirety of the body and each position within the body has eternal uh, value and that all are necessary. And I thank God today that, that what we don't have here is a room full of pastors and a room full of preachers in which they're um, arguing and contentious over the pulpit and the preaching and teaching. Yet at the same time, I long for more because surely God has given some of you the desire, the maturity, and the weight of responsibility to say that that. I'm going to take upon the task of, 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 of keeping this flock for God. Surely, I'm not the only one. And I know that that's true. Um, but I know that as, as the church grows and as God raises up men and as the church disciples and as you grow, that God is, is making some of you for that. You know? And it's a daunting task. And in that daunting task, it demands a certain type of, of character that we'll get to in just a moment. But the, the point is, is that, that, that God makes men for this. And He generally brings about the reality of it by giving a man a desire. Psalm chapter 34, I believe it is, is that you delight yourself in the Lord and He gives you the desires of your heart. That, that He calls men to this. What I mean by that, I mean that there's an effectual desire of a divine origin that God places into particular men to carry out His purposes in the world and particularly for the pastor in the church. And, I, and maybe just for a minute I need to de-romanticize that, you know? Um, so many men have an idealistic and practical notion of what ministry or being an elder is. You know? Men can have the same uh, a job or uh, this or that. You know, we we create heavenly fairy tale ideas, romantic ideas of what um, we think that something should be, which often leads to discouragement, leads to depression, it leads to you know uh, the fatal realization within the the ministry. And young men go off to train, and I've seen it, and maybe I was there once. You know, they they go off to train in mega churches, and they, they see the spiritual oasis, and they think that pastoring or, or or being an elder in a church is going to be you know five days a week of sitting up in some high lofty place in which they just are best friends with the Puritans, and every once in a while they'll come down and over coffee and cigars just hash out some of the great theological um, nuances of, of this doctrine or that doctrine, and they'll preach once or twice a week, and that's the pastoral role. If that's what you think it is, you're in for a rude awakening. <laughs> that, that's not to say either that it's not joyful and it's not wondrous. 
And there's not glories ever, forevermore as you meet with people and there's tragedies and you're there to pick them up and to encourage and to instruct and to, to be there for them in their most difficult times. But the reality is, is that when you sign up, that the thing that you desire that is a good thing is a hard work. You know, It is a work in the Word primarily. Um, but with the Apostle Paul who was beaten and persecuted and often left for dead and abandoned not only by his foes but by his friends, any man would look at that and say, well, what in the world would you want that for? And that's why um, a lot of men go off to seminary and they find out there that this is not exactly what they want. You know, I remember listening to a missionary one time. Um, they said that... that Men generally go off into the mission field and they're back in two years, the vast majority. Um, and it's because they have an overly romanticized ideal of what missions are. You know, they have this idea that they're the savior of the world, and what they're going to do is they're going to take the gospel to this unreached people group who are just over there overwhelmingly um, desiring God, but nobody's brought them the Bible yet. And they'll be the superhero in the, in the story what they find is that most often that those people are over there without God because they don't want Him. And they hate Him. And then when they get there and you tell them that you need to sacrifice all of your pagan idols and pull them down and, 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 put, and, 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 and that Jesus might ascend to the throne and He's the only God in which you'll serve, you find out very quickly whether it's on the beach which you're beheaded or later on after 10 years of translating work that the chances that they don't want them. So, so many young men with a, with a romanticized idea that they are the prince or the, the, the king or the valiant servant with a sword and they're going to come in and they're going to save the world, they find out that only Jesus can save. And that if a work is going to be accomplished, that Christ is going to accomplish it through them and even in spite of their failed efforts. That men that stay on the field are men who are called. They're not there because mama sent them. They're not there because the church appointed them. They're not there simply because they have zeal and want to change the world. They're there because God put a desire in their hearts to, to elevate Him to glory. And they know that if they go and not a man in, in, in that entire village comes to Christ, that they were there for a purpose. And that the Gospel is worthy to be proclaimed and prevail in every inch of the earth and if Jesus Christ desires that, then He deserves it. If He died for the nations and there's people out there that, 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 that need to hear that the reason that you go is not inherently because of the people, although they are the goal, practically speaking. The reason that men ascend to the office, the reason that men go is because God gifts those men and because God calls those men and God places a desire in those men. Like the Apostle Paul who says, woe unto me if I preach not the Gospel. That's the only way you could stay on the field. That's the only way you could be there 15 years, 10 years, even 5 years. No profession of faith. You know, because you, you, you are convinced that in some sense that I am there ultimately for Him. Never to be known and remembered. But trusting that if He has me there for a purpose, then I will persevere and He will uphold me. And that He blesses that type of work. It's the same with the pastoral role. You know, if you have some romanticized, so many young men have just a romanticized idea of, of, of what you know, pastoring the church is. And it is great. And it is glorious. And there is joy, again, eternally forevermore. But at the same time, it's a hard work. But it's a good work. 
It's a great work. Um, and if God has placed that desire in you, it's a work that um, that you have to do. You know? Um, not only is it a man who's called, but it's a man who has character. That's who we're looking for. A man who desires the office. But at the same time, the desire often comes through means, right? I can remember before I ever um, desired the office or thought I desired it, I had many men who came to me and many women. I remember this is the sweetest little lady at one of our previous churches. Probably the first one ever approached me and said, Son, you know, I think you need to be in the ministry. Before I ever even thought about it, she came to me. But the church is often used to even develop and cultivate a desire in you men. You know? But some of you I've came to and I thought, and I've asked, have you ever considered the office of an elder? They no, not at all. I would encourage the church here as was in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and Acts chapter 6 and other places in the Scripture, that, that, that after today, you get a, a decent idea or you have a, a strong idea of what a man should be. We're looking for those men within the church that if you identify one of those men, it's not off base for you to walk up to a man like that and say, have you ever considered the office of an elder? Because you are an example to follow. You are an example to my young men. You're an example to, to, to my family. You are an example in which you, you have character that seems to exceed uh, the others. Um, you are a man of character. The idea here in 1 Timothy, and as well as in Titus, is that it, it captures some sense of a maturity. That he's not only a man that has a desire, but he's a man that... So, so, so desire in and of itself is not enough. So many men have the desire and they're not qualified or they're disqualified. That in correlation with that must be a man who has spiritual maturity. Simple zeal is not enough. A man must be a certain type of man. A man of character. A man of spiritual maturity. That's who we're looking for. That's what's um, indicative in the idea or inherent in the idea of, of, of elder. The very term in and of itself. But it's not speaking inherently of an older man. Although most of the time it will be speaking. That the young man is often the exception. Um, and not the rule. But, but, but Paul doesn't give us an age. He could have, but he doesn't. We know that Timothy and Titus both are encouraged uh, to not allow for anyone to despise their youth. That these were young men. Men on mission. Timothy, we know, was, an, was a, a pastor, an elder within the church. Titus, who was a, a man who was um, a representative to the churches to appoint elders with some sense of authority. And that these men, too, um, while not perfect, had seemingly the character um, to carry with it the authority of Christ. Um, so what does it look like then? We know what physical maturity looks like. White hair, you know. Or as a, as a young man grows taller, bulkier, stronger, as he continues, white hair begins to become frail and fade. We know what elderly um, maturity looks like, but what is spiritual maturity looks like? It looks like a man who's above reproach is what the text says. Chapter uh, 3 and verse number 2. A man then must be blameless. It's the idea, you may have a translation that literally says above reproach. So what are we looking for in a man, uh, for an elder? We're looking for a man who, who God would birth in them a desire for the position, not a romanticized view, but he's literally willing to oversee the work of the church. He has spiritual maturity and he's willing to receive the responsibility to, to guard the flock of God, uh, particularly through the ministry of the Word. And he's going to be one day accountable to God for that. He's fine with that. 
The only man that would be fine with that after you de-romanticize it and look at him and say, son, you're in for a hard life. And now you're going to be withstood. You're going to be abandoned. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be offended, not only by your foes, but by your friends. The only type of man that would accept such a responsibility, unless he's a fool, is a man who has character. A man whose inner man is spiritually mature. He's, a, he's above reproach. He's blameless. This is a general term for the entirety of his character. Everything else is going to explain it after that. Titus 1 says that a bishop too must be blameless. The root word there is to take hold of something, to lay your hand upon it. It's negated by a prefix. So the idea is, is you can't lay hold of him. He has no mark. He has no vice. He has no sinful defect that would call his life, his virtue, his godliness, his righteousness into question. There's no one that can be found successfully bringing against him any legitimate charge. There's nothing in his life, present or past, that would disqualify him from being a spiritual model to follow. Do you know any men within the church like that? Titus 2 gives the, 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 the same concept above reproach. But it's a different word. It literally, it, 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 it's the word to call. And it's negated again by a prefix. It's similar to our word theist and atheist. A theism would be a belief in God or the study of God or the idea of God. Atheist would be one who doesn't believe in God. The idea here is to call, but you can't call this person into question. It's, 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 it's literally not being called. Not being called before the court, before the tribunal, not being called into question. In other words, there's no charge that can be fixed on this man. Um, there's no evidence for the fault that he has been confronted with. It's not that when an accusations are made against him, you can't convict him. It's more so that he lives his life in such a way that it would never be called into question. If anyone was to bring his character into question, you'd say, no way. You know? And I'll say this of myself. You know, if going down the road an offense is made or an accusation is made against me and you're relaying that message to someone rightfully, let's even say it's something like sexual immorality. It's an epidemic in our age with men, particularly in the pastoral role. So many men even in our day being disqualified as a result of sexual immorality. If that came up, and you looked at the person next to you who's a part of the church as well, and you say something like, I saw that coming. I shouldn't be your pastor. You know, the man who leads the congregation, the man who, who takes the reins and responsibility of the flock is not a man who you see falling anytime soon. He's a man of character. He's a man in which you can't lay a charge. He's a man in which something like that came up. You would more than willingly jump over the pews to give him the benefit of the doubt. You would say, no way, not him. I know him. I've been with him. I've, I've prayed alongside him. Not that he's a perfect man. Not that he's a man that couldn't fall. But he is a man of character and self-control. The things that we're going to talk about in just a moment. Such that, that, that you, would be, you, you would go to task over the, willing to, to, to give him the benefit of the doubt because of the type of man that he is. Those are the type of men that we're looking for. Look around. Do we have that type of man here? A man in whom charges would come from the world because they will. Lies will be um, raised up against him. And it's not that he's impenetrable. You know, he's a man just like us, subject to the subject to, 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 to reality, and sometimes even to the courts, to be tried. Um, 
But given his life and given his the way he carries himself and given his character and given his devotion to you, you look at him and say, I just don't see how that could even be possible. That's what we're talking about. Because past, present, and future. He's a man of personal character. He's a man, First Timothy says, is a, is a one-woman man. Um, he's learned to discipline his sexual appetite so that he's, he's interested in developing, uh, he's not, uh, or he's interested in developing friendship, courtship, marriage with only one woman. You know, he's, 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 not, a, he's not a man who's chasing women. Um, he, he's not one caught up with lust. He's got that under control. He, he knows how to control his mind. He's temperate. He's sober-minded. He's of good behavior. He's hospitable. He's, he's gentle. He speaks evil of no one. He's peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. He's a humble man. That's how, you know, you could almost dissect it like that. First Timothy as well as Titus, there's positive characteristics and negative. Those things which he is to be and those things which he's not. You know, we could spend an hour on each one of these, but we're not going to. Because the, the, the point is, is a general idea of what type of this man is. He's a temperate man. He's a moderate man. He's not a man given over to excess. He, he's not controlled by the circumstances. Um, he, his finances are not uh, flying out of the bank account because he flipped through Facebook and he saw this thing and he's got to have it. You know, he's, he's not controlled by relationships and other people. He's the one who's in control. He's taken dominion over his life. He knows how to govern his own soul. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for a man who can govern his own soul well. Um, he can govern his family well. Thus, he can govern the church well. In this instance, in this character, we clearly see a man who can govern his own soul well. Um, he's sober-minded, the text says. He knows how to control it. You know, lust is something that may be something that he once battled with, but no more. And it's not that it never enters into his mind. It's that when it does, he knows how to control his mind, take his thoughts captive um, uh, by the Word of God for the glory of Christ. He's a man who knows how to act and not just react to the world and everything going on around him. He knows how to take his thoughts captive. He's learned. He's of good behavior. He knows how to carry himself. He's respectable. He's hospitable. He's a lover of men. He's a lover of, of people. He understands within the family of God that, 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 that He is sharing in this life with image bearers of God and they are worthy of dignity and respect. He doesn't fly off the handle and gossip about one another. He's hospitable. He knows how to serve. He's gentle. Uh, that doesn't sound very manly, does it? But it speaks of humility. Titus 3.2 says, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. He's in some sense a peacemaker. He's not, uh, in just a moment, he's not quarrelsome. He's not violent. He's not one who is quick to fight and, and contentious for contentious sake. Um, he's a humble man. He's a man that recognizes that he's not perfect and that he needs Christ. Uh, but he's a man that is not given to wine. Again, the negative. Um, he's not an addict. He's not given to excess. He's not, he's not taken control of by other things. He's not violent. He's not greedy for money. He's not serving Christ or, or wanting to be a part of the family of God to receive a, a dime. You know, like He's not in it for that. He's in it because God called him. He's in it because God's given him a love for people um, and he wants to serve. He's not quarrelsome. He's not covetous, the text says. Um, he's not a novice. He's not a new believer. And the idea is, is that he is mature because it says that with pride he would fall into condemnation as the devil or because of the devil. The idea is, is that he has developed enough maturity 
in which he knows how to carry himself in the office because he's a self-governing man. You know, um, essentially, you could leave him alone in a house for weeks, and he'd still honor the Lord. Um, he, he doesn't really need authority over him, but at the same time, he welcomes it because he knows it's from God, and he knows that it's good to have in his life. Um, he he rarely ever has to submit to it because he already has a submissive heart in him. This is the type of man that he is. Titus gives almost the exact same um, qualifications with a discrepancy between a couple. Not discrepancy. Um, Timothy has a couple that Titus doesn't. And I think that's important to note as well. That what you don't have here is Titus and Timothy standing at the door of Crete or at Ephesus with a checklist um, saying, are you gentle? Check. Are you um, quarrelsome? Check. Or, and not quarrelsome. Check. Not violent. Check. And once he's met all the qualifications, he's in. You know, it's, it's not, I don't think what Paul is doing here is painting an exhaustive list. A checklist for you and me to go down and say, this is all that's required, because it's not. What he's doing is, is he's painting a picture. Because if that was the reality, then, then Timothy has more restrictions or more um, qualifications than Titus does. And what would inevitably happen with young men is that they would go over to the school of Timothy and Timothy would say, no, nope, you're a novice. And then they would look and say, well, Titus over in Crete doesn't have that qualification. Let's go over and see if we can get in Titus's church and lead because Timothy won't let us. That's not the point. You know? And I've seen men do that. I know of men that, have, that were Baptist at one point um, that gave up the ministry and ceasing to be Baptist because they're too strict. And that you know, the church of this or this denomination will allow them in to be an elder. You know, essentially, that's what we do as natural men. That's not the point. That the limitations that are, that are put here, that, that, that what we see here is more of a picture that's being painted of a type of man. For example, we play this game with our kids. And I think our, our oldest made it up whenever she was young. What animal is it? What you would do is you would work through certain characteristics and try to guess the animal that's in the brain, you know. And inevitably, I would guess it, or eventually, I had to just quit because homeschool kids are different. <laughs> I mean, they'll come out with with animals that you've never heard of or think existed, and I think that sometimes they've just made them up. But but inevitably, what'll happen is you'll say, "I guessed it," and you'll get it right, and they'll come out with some crazy. A reality fact about that thing that you never even knew. Like, how did you guess it? You didn't even know that they had the ability to change their temperature internally, this or that, or they have this system within that no other animal has. And I said, yeah, yeah, but, but basically, I, I knew what it was. It doesn't preclude other things that it is. It's like a father. You're, he's painting a picture of what type of man it is, but it doesn't mean that he shouldn't be more. You know, So, so you could conclude that, that, that in Titus's, that the type of man that is there shouldn't be a novice. The idea is, is that as he's painting the picture um, there that, that, that this type of man um, is the type of man that, that, that has the character that, that he has. For example, in Timothy, um, he's to have uh, a good report with those that are without. Well, Titus doesn't require that. Well, I'll just go over to Titus's church because I've really messed it up at work. No, no. The, the, the type of man that is in Titus is the type of man in Timothy that, that should have an external good report. That that's what we're talking about here. That, 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 that we're talking about a certain type of man in which is to lead. 
And we could go on and on about that. But, 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 but the purpose is that there is a certain type of man in which we're looking for. And we're not going through necessarily with a checklist and saying because he's met these qualifications, then he's, he's inherently um, good. We're looking for a man particularly who has um, the ability to govern his own self. He's mature. He's self-controlled. Um, you, you would have no worry um, when leaving him alone. Um, he's gentle. He's humble. He's a spiritual man. God has cultivated the fruits and graces of the Spirit in his life. And he looks like Christ in so many avenues. Doesn't mean he'll never fail. Um, but what we're looking for is for a, a, a character that is long-term chronic. Um, that if he did fail in some way, if he does sin, he knows what to do about it. I'm not talking about some grievous sin or something that's um, such as sexual immorality or adultery or this or that, but, but, but talking about you know, um, minor things. That he knows how to deal with it. He de- he doesn't leave it lagging, uh, lagging long. He he repents and by faith comes to Christ. He he knows how to be transformed by grace. And he's to be an example of that as much as he is to be an example of what not to do and what to do. But what to do? He he, he knows how to repent. He knows how to forgive. He knows how to forget. He knows how to move on. Um, he's a man of character, and he's a man in which you'd look at and you'd say, no man could lay a charge against that guy. At least nothing that would stick. Not only is he a man who's called, he's a man who's um, of character. He's a man who's credible within and without. First um, Timothy 3 and verse 4. One who rules his own house well, having his ch- children in submission with all reverence or dignity. For if a man, why? Because if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? And it's a rhetorical question. The implication is that he won't. But this type of man is called to rule his house well. And all, all men uh, are called to this. But this man does it with a consistency and a measure that is noticeable um, in its result. You know, As you look around, and you look, we look for men in the church, do you see men that, that, that rule their houses well? Do you see them having their children in subjection? Do you see them being obedient? Do you see them ruling with reverence and with dignity? Um, the ideal is, is there that it signifies the character of that man, which entitles him to respect from others. It's what we talked about in a similar way last week with gravitas, with gravity. Older men teach the younger men to be grave, to carry themselves in such a way that it commands, that their presence commands the respect, that they don't command it. But the way that they carry themselves. Um, with love and the fear of God, um, cause others to look at their lives in awe, not at them, but at God and what He's accomplished in their lives. Men, you're to do this in your homes. The idea is is that there is a a nobility of mind. This is uh, one commenter writes, a nobility of mind consisting of a high sense of propriety, truth and justice, with an abhorrence for meanness and sinful action. It conveys the sense of a true honor and excellence that gains the respect and submission of others. The sense is that a child sees these qualities in their father, grounded in his example, and it calls forth respect and obedience. This is the idea that a man within the home carries himself in such a way. It's not that he's got all of his ducks in a row inherently. Tyrants do that. Vladimir Putin does that, you know. 
Um, you know, men do that. We, by nature, at least some of us, you know, are, are more geared toward the order, but it's order gained in an inappropriate way. It's an abuse of authority. And that requires of, of men and women things that, 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 that are ungodly. And there's an ungodly way in which they often pursue it. There are men that have their children, that have their homes in order and they're disobedient to God. They need to repent because they're, 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 they're nothing but, but, but tyrants. Um, th- th- that's not the idea here. It's, the idea is, is that he carries himself in such a way with a fear of God and carries his authority coupled with love in such a way that when he exercises that authority, they understand and readily receive it. And, and it creates and cultivates in the life of their children um, a respect for the Father in such a way that they know how to carry themselves when He's gone as much as when He is here. You know, that, they, they, that the oversight is not always necessary, but, 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 but is represented in their lives as they obey Him even apart from Him. I mean, I could give you illustrations of this. Um, I've read this to the men before. I'll read it again. Um, Robert E. Lee was a, a Christian man insofar as we can tell, and God blessed him. And I'm going to read this quote from his son. He says, From the early time I began to be impressed with my father's character as compared with other men. Every member of the household respected, revered, and loved him as a matter of course. But it began to dawn on me that everyone else with whom I was thrown held him in high regard. At 45 years of age, he was active, strong, and handsome as he had ever been. I never remember his being ill. I presume he was indisposed at times, but no impressions of that kind remain. He was always bright and gay with us little folk, romping, playing, and joking with us. With older children, he was just as companionable. And they they have seen him join my older brothers and their friends when they would try their powers at a high jump up in in our yard. The two younger children he petted a great deal. And our greatest treat was to get us into his bed in the morning and lie close to him, listening while he talked to us in his bright, entertaining way. The custom we kept up until, he, up until I was 10 years old and over. Although he was so joyous and familiar with us, he was very firm on all proper occasions. Never indulged us in anything that was not, too, was not good for us and exacted the most implicit obedience. I always knew that it was impossible to disobey my father. I felt it in me. I never thought that. I never thought, I never thought why, but was perfectly sure when he gave an order that it had to be obeyed. The father's character, end quote, the father's character, well-rounded conduct, excellence as a man in general, created just a respect and a reverence that motivated one to, to, to duty, and joyful obedience. Not his high-handedness, it was his exemplary manhood, his dignity, and the way that he carried himself that commanded his respect and ultimate obedience. And isn't that what we have in Christ? You know, as I mentioned last week, we don't have a tyrant up in heaven you know, that, that overwhelmingly forces us into exact obedience. But as we grow in the fear of God and the knowledge of holiness and, 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 the, and the knowledge of His love for us, man, doesn't it just command love? And if you love me, keep my commandments. 
You know, yes, he's holy. And yes, when he shows up and his presence comes down, you fall upon your face because you know of the character and the, and the presence of such a, a holy God. Yet at the same time, you can come in boldly through the throne room of grace right? because you know the type of, of man that he was as he gave himself on Calvary for us. And, and we are joint heirs with him and we, 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 we partake of the, the glories of Christ and, and, and his benefits. And, and there's this sense in which, yes, we reverence and fear, but at the same time, we, we rejoice and we tremble. You know? There's this holy love and fear. Oh, that God would give us men like that. Oh, that I would be a man like that. In which my children would look up and they wouldn't see a tyrannical dictator. Just, 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 and they tremble at the thought of the rod coming down. But, but in their heart and soul, they, they, they look at a man who has character, who loves them, who, who they know it beyond a shadow of a doubt that at the end of their life, they look back and they say, He loved us and He cared for us. And that, 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 that carries with it a respect and of governance. That He carried Himself well. That He knew when to, to bring down the rod and he knew when not to. He wasn't an abuser of justice. He meted it out appropriate and, and, and only when it was appropriate. And oftentimes it was met uh, before with much mercy and grace. Oh, how he loved us. That's the type of man that has made me the man that I am today. I didn't have that type of man growing up. I didn't have that father. Oh, how I pray that my children will. And then he knows when to when to bring the right. He knows when not to. He's not an abuser of justice. He meets it out appropriately. And he often extends mercy and grace within the home. And he commands, and it's just his very presence. Commands it. It takes time. It's not always there. It's not inherent in the children. But he knows that if he doesn't, then the children will inevitably be disobedient. Is that what he says? Uh, negatively, um, in, in Titus's chapter, the negative is is that um, they'll be given over to dissipation and insubordination, extravagance, excessiveness, um, rebellion, unruly, disobedient, cannot be subjected to control. The idea is the same of Jesus Christ who, who, who puts all things under His feet. This person is, is, these children are not to be put under the authority of their parents. Listen, there is, a, there is a way to disqualify yourself, man. And it is not to rule your house well. That's the point. That um, these type of men have not ruled well. Um, these type of men do not govern their homes. And the question arises is why are they this way? Um, it's clear that the parents of a child that have a tremendous amount of influence over that child... And what you have in this passage is a disqualification because the father is responsible for insubordination and rebellion. That's one reason Paul writes to the Ephesians and says, um, children, obey your parents and the Lord, but also fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. There's such a way in which you can provoke in your children um, an ungodliness and even cultivate in them a rebellion that is you are responsible for. Chances are that when the child was young, even at the earliest of stages, there was no order. What I mean by that is, again, similar to last week, authority was not established. And what you have in this home is a home ran by children. They dictate when you get up. They dictate when you lie down. They dictate when you eat meals. They dictate what you eat. And they dictate where you go. I've known men who desire the office of an elder. 
And they tell me that, you know, their children, that they missed church that day or Sunday school um, because they didn't want to wake up their sleeping child. You know? I mean, take control of your homes, man. You know? Teach your children routine. Teach them governance. Teach them how to rise up and how to lie down. You're, you're not subject to that. And then this is what happens. And you wonder why you know, at 15 or 16 or 17 they grow up and they're ultimately rebellious. It's because it's been cultivated in their hearts. There was no one there to, 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 to restrain them when they were young. There was no one there to set the standard or to discipline them in such a way to godliness. You know, there was, when you were given there, the proverb says to save their soul from hell, you weren't there. You were subject to their whims. They were like a storm in your home and you were subject tossed to and fro and they were allowed to rule and to reign and to govern the home in such a way that you were at their mercy and not theirs. They trained you and you didn't train them. Now those are the men that, 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 that when they enter into eldership will be subject to the waves and the whims of the circumstances and the people. When somebody comes forth because they're abusing a child or, or, or they're, they're, they're illegitimately um, they're trying to run their home or discipline is necessary, that'll be the man that says, wait, you know, we don't want to rock the boat and divide the church. And an elder who has character, who understands discipline and love and, and, and has a respect about him will understand that there are certain things that, that, that need to be divided over. That there are certain things for which you stand, that you're given the, the care of the flock of God, and that, 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 that these people you are to care for um, and to love and, to, to, and, to, and to, to, to shepherd and to instruct and to rebuke when necessary. And that it is that means by which God has given you um, to bring people up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And you know that's true because you know you need it in your own life. You know? That, that, that men who are subject to the whims of their children and their, and their homes are ran by them cultivate a rebellious spirit. And that same thing happens in churches. That's what you see in the church at Revelation. What you see is either a lack of leadership or you see a lack of, of, of men with character who are leading according to Christ's example. Um, who are allowing sin to run rampant within churches. Why? Because they're not, they're, they're not willing to rock the boat. You know, I mean, the offerings will go down. I mean, we might lose the space if that's the case. Let us lose the space. Let the offerings go down. You know? So that men may know that Jesus Christ sits on the throne of heaven and that the Gospel requires of them to operate in such a way that demands of them love for their wives and love for their husbands and love for their children. Now, we need a type of man who will stand for what's right. That's, and, and that's the next portion. A man who governs, that's the point, the man who governs his house well will, govern, will, um, will, will potentially govern the church well. Why? Because number four, he's a man with content in his theology and conviction about his doctrine. You know, that's what he, he says in Titus chapter number 1 and verse number 9. Right? Titus chapter 1 and verse number 9. He holds fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Listen, at verse 10, there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision whose mouths must be stopped. How are we going to do that? We need some men who know the truth. We need some men who hold fast to the faithful word. We need some men that will hold to the apostles' teaching. 
that they may be able by sound doctrine, by healthy doctrine, to exhort, to convict those who contradict. That there are going to be men. This, this is why we need to de-romanticize it. You know? uh, the idea of the pastoral role. That there are going to be men. Acts chapter 20. Elders know that there are wolves seeking to come in. When they come in, know that, 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 that you are the answer to the problem. And I can tell you from personal experience, just in the short life of this church, it's happened. You know, they will come through the door. And the difficulty is, is that you won't know that they're there until they're here and been rooted in for some time. Why? Because they are dressed in sheep's clothing. It'll often manifest itself in gossip and counseling and even in teaching. They'll seek a lectern or a pulpit and, or even within a home. And you, we need men. Titus, you need to appoint men who are holding fast the doctrines that have been taught to you by the apostles that were birthed in Christ ultimately. We need some men that will give themselves to the Word and to prayer. Now, we need some men who will steep themselves in the truth so that they'll know how to counsel and they'll know how to lead. They'll know when to, to, to stand and they'll know when to sit down. They'll know when to rebuke and correct, but they'll also know when to instruct and encourage and to uphold. Now we need some men who know the truth. Give me a man who's called, who has the desire. Give me a man who, who, who has character. And you know he has character by the way he governs his own life and by the way that he governs his home. Give me a man like that and you'll handle the Scriptures. Give us a man that will handle the Scriptures well. Only men of character. This is why you don't put into the pulpit or you don't um, you know, exalt a man too early in his ministry. You just don't put any warm-blooded American with zeal about quote-unquote God you know, in a position of authority. Why? Um, because if you don't know the character of that man, you will not know how he'll handle the Word. You know? And the Word is His primary ministry. So give us uh, is His primary ministry. This is how He's going to shepherd. This is how He's going to oversee. This is how He's going to cultivate. This is how He's going to disciple. This is the, these are the type of men that we need. We need men whom God would birth a desire in, who are called of God. Not just, not just decided in and of Himself or somebody thought it would be a good idea, but God is cultivating a desire um, to where you're, and you're mature enough that you understand the weight of this and the joy of this um, such that you're willing to receive it with knowing that one day you'll give an account to God. You know, The only man that can receive that with joy is a man of character. A man who governs his own soul well. A man in which he's above reproach that you'd look at him and you'd say, like, you couldn't lay a charge against that kind of guy. You know? Like I'd follow him. You know? Even if I don't understand everything that he's doing. You know? Even a father. I mean... The children, sometimes they don't get it. They say, Daddy, where are we going? We'll go outside at night and go into the woods, you know, uh, for something, um, to chase a cat or something. You know, some, some farm animal that we've adopted or inherited or, or, or bought, you know, because we're wild and crazy like that. But, but, but they'll go with me. Seemingly scared to death in the beginning, but when I'm there... I could take them to the ends of the earth and they wouldn't question it, you know? Because they love their daddy and they trust him, you know? That's what we need in men. We need men who we can trust. I don't mean, I don't necessarily need, we don't need men that can just knock it out of the park and plagiarize a sermon and preach a shotgun sermon home, you know? Fools do that. The devil does that. 
Angels of light, do, or, uh, the demons masquerading around as angels of righteousness do that. What we need are men who are known by their fruits. What we need men are men of character who can govern themselves, who will hold fast the Word of God. When they don't know it, they won't preach it. They only preach what they know. And they're afraid to preach anything opposite because, because they're afraid that, because they know that they'll be accountable to God one day. When people enter into the church, wolves in sheep's clothing, or enter into their homes and try to lead their children astray, they will, without a doubt, stand up with resolve and say, no, these are mine. And more than that, these are Christ. He bought them with His precious blood, and you won't. You know? You'll find some other platform to go preach the false doctrine. You'll find some other platform to go and invest your time. You'll find some other platform. You know, repent or perish. And I wouldn't say it all quite like that. I'm a little more bold right here than I would be. Um, but in that, without a doubt, we need men who stand in the gap. Who do you want? You know? You look around. You know, man, man, again, I want to say at the very beginning, like a desire is, I think, necessary. But I, you know, First uh, Peter chapter number five, that you are, you know, Paul or Peter actually exhorts the elders within the church to do it willingly, not by constraint. That there is a desire that needs to be there. They they, they don't need to be forced into the position against their own conscience, but they, they they receive it. But at the same time, it's not enough to have a desire. Zealous fools have desires. We need men with character. We need the church to look and say, that's the guy. I mean, I think that what we see in Scripture is leadership appointing leadership. Titus, appoint the elders. But at the same time, what you see is the church's affirmation. Um, that yes, God made them overseers, but Acts chapter 14 and 23 says, so when they had appointed elders in every church and prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. That, that, that there was a church that came alongside and said, yes, these are the men. The Holy Ghost made them, and we're going to appoint them. The, the, the desire is born inside, and the desire is affirmed through life outside. Titus, appoint them. So let's appoint them. You look around, do you see men like that? What kind of man do you want for leadership? Does it matter? You want somebody that could just come up and, and just preach a shotgun sermon, you know, and just... Just bring it home. And everybody loves it and laughs and thinks that was great. You want a man like Saul who stands head and shoulders above men? Or do you want someone like Moses who when called says, Lord, I'm not your guy. I'm not able. But the Lord knew what kind of man he was. That he was a certain type of man. And when... God places a responsibility on that type of man. He enables that type of man. We don't need able-bodied men. We don't need men with great theological degrees. We don't need men with masters of divinity necessarily. It's good. It's helpful. Now, we don't need men who, who seemingly have all the external attributes and just head and shoulders above all other men. What we need are humble men. We need men of character. We need men with a desire and a recognition of what they're doing within the flock of God to take that responsibility. We need, we need men who recognize the eternal weight that comes with giving an account to God for that one day. We need men who are leading and governing their own lives as well as those in the lives around them. We need men with some convictions and know how to handle and care for the Word of God. We need men. And we need these type of men. 
do you see men like that in this church? Again, not perfect men. We're not, we're not longing for perfect men. If that's the case, we'll never ordain anybody and I should probably step down. Um, but we are looking for a certain type of man who's qualified, who's able, because God has cultivated through time a spiritual maturity in Him that He recognizes and receives that responsibility. If you know of a man like that, let me know. I think we have some here. But it's also helpful not only to hear from my wife what kind of man I am, but also for my children. You know, because they recognize it too. I want to know, do you recognize it too? You know, who would you follow in this congregation when you look at their lives and their character and the way they carry themselves? Let us look for these men. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for the glory of Christ. Again, we thank You for the opportunity to gather together, Lord, and just, I hope in some way, honor You. Father, I pray that what we've done here today is worthy of Christ's name. Father, what a, what a huge task before us. And what gravity that comes with it. Father, even to the point that you wonder who is sufficient for these things. Or some days I wonder who's worthy at all to take up such a task to stand in the gap for your sheep. And yet at the same time, I know that Jesus Christ Himself died to accomplish that in us. And He gave gifts to the church and those gifts are in the form of men. Men who will love you and who will love them, Father. Men who will follow in their Savior's stead and giving their life a ransom. And they can say even with Jesus, that they did it because of the joy that was set before them. Um, that the blessing of it carries greater weight than the difficulty. And we know that this is where God has called us and placed us and positioned us. Thus we go. And inherently because of that, we stay. Father, we're thankful for Your work in us. We're thankful for all that You continue to accomplish in us and pray that You'll do so much the more. Father, we pray that You'll give us clarity and unity upon the men that are to lead. Father, men whom You'll birth a desire in, that they'll reach after it with all that's in them. Father, that they'll recognize, and that we'll recognize too, the weight and responsibility of it, but because of their character. Um, Father, um, they can carry that load. Give us men of character, Father, men that we can follow. Give us men um, that have governed themselves, themselves, their families, well, Father, and give us some men with conviction um, who know how to handle the Word and who know who, and know when to fight and when not and what to fight over and what not. Give us men who love the Gospel. Give us men who love Jesus Christ. Father, give us men who love the church. And Father, give us men who will take up the reins and answer that call in some sense. Come alongside, Father, and labor together for the cause of Christ for the sake of the sheep. Father, build your community up in this church and build it up for your glory and your glory alone. 
Father, use us in some way to help accomplish that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.